I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to... Jeff Winthrop-Young. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Now, uh, you're kind of a special guest today. Um, you don't come with a scientific background. You come with a more cultural and analytical background, right? That is true, yes. You're a professor in, and stop me if I get this wrong, in the Department of Central, Eastern, Northern European Studies, right? Yes. And I am working in the German and Scandinavian program in that particular department. We normally call it CNES. Now, what got you into the, the research? I am currently dealing with a research project which uh, goes back to certain problems I had teaching courses and research interests that happen to somehow merge with it. For the last couple of years, I was primarily in administration. So I was teaching only two courses, a course on Vikings and Old, Old Norse mythologies and a course on the Third Reich. And to quickly talk about Vikings, because that is more entertaining, is that when you teach a course about Vikings, you are dealing with students who know stuff. So they will come in with certain preconceptions, and the first thing you have to do is make them unlearn it. Obvious example is the horned helmet. No Viking ever wore a horned helmet. It would be a stupid idea to wear a horned helmet in combat. But the same problem goes when you teach a course about the Third Reich. It is arguably now the most researched historical period in history. You're dealing with cubic meters of secondary literature, but above all, you're dealing with certain preconceived notions. And what I was trying to do is to find backdoor entries that would make the class more engaging and that would get students more involved in thinking about things which are also quite topical today. And there are two or three topics I came up with. Number one is the question of species resurrection. And that is that shortly before the Third Reich, that in the Third Reich itself, we see the first serious, though some scientists will put that serious in inverted commas, the first serious attempt to backbreed an extinct species namely the aurochs. Topic number two is, uh, if I may say this straightforwardly, a completely wacko theory called world ice theory, which enjoyed a certain backing during the Third Reich and which is a completely new way of explaining everything that ever happened. And number three was the methamphetamine abuse especially under the trade name pervitine, which may or may not have played a role in the Second World War, especially the early stages, but which also illuminates certain ways in which the National Socialist regime approached the medical welfare of the collective body. And so these things coincided with a research interest, which is a large topic on chronopolitics. How do societies organize time how do societies view the passage from the future through the present into the past? And in order to make it more tangible, I now always include uh, these things on species resurrection, on methamphetamines and on world ice theory in order to make it more topical and more accessible. 
it's definitely very um, topical for today. I mean, uh, we have uh, society struggling with uh, its understanding of where the world came from today. Uh, we have certainly de-extinction uh, popping up again today and um, certainly a drug crisis. Um, maybe not quite as re as related, but... I did not quite anticipate it, but you're absolutely right. With regard to species resurrection, of course, there has been a lot of discussion lately, especially in connection with CRISPR technology and going back to Jurassic Park. With regard to methamphetamines and drugs, it is a very serious issue because it arose also some of the most, uh, some of the worst headlines you could read during the COVID crisis was the neglect of the elderly. And if you have a whole establishment, a medical establishment geared towards performance, you are slowly moving towards what is called senicide, the killing of the elderly. And that is something which the Third Reich was actually starting to tackle. They never went that far. And with regard to World Eyes theory, on the surface, of course, it's climate change. Yes, Welldice theory has something to say about sudden climate change. We can talk about that. But there is an underlying very, very serious issue, and that is racism. To what degree did sudden climate change impact the development of various races? And to what degree is today the talk about climate change once again slowly being linked to the question of race? Yeah, and, and it's almost uh, the flip side of the same coin. Um, I, I would say that uh, today we uh, we associate climate change as affecting uh, certain cultures very um, intensely um, and, and impacting them more so than other cultures. Uh, we know that certainly the First Nations are going to be very uh, impacted by climate change, maybe more so than us living uh, in cities, you know, a more uh, urban lifestyle. Yeah, and it, with regard to the way in which they thought about this about 100 years ago, the idea was that sudden periods of coldness would breed toughness, and periods of extreme coldness would ex breed extreme toughness and thereby superiority. And what you can see now sometimes on the far right is the same idea, but under the headings of warmth. And that is we're heading towards a crisis which would actually be a kind of a triage. It would separate the racial wheat from the racial chaff. Oh, I, I hadn't heard that. <laughs> so climate change can be viewed through a, a racism lens. Well, what I would suggest, Daniel, is if we can start with this very strange theory, world ice theory. It has a certain entertainment factor to it. And it all starts once upon a time in September 1894. There's an Austrian engineer by the name of Hans Helbiger who is working in Budapest in Hungary. It's been a long day. He comes back home. He's tired and he wants to relax. And he is a hobby astronomer. So he goes out onto his balcony, takes his little telescope and trains it on the stars. But the moon is shining too brightly. He can't see any stars. And so he starts looking at the moon. He looks at the moon. And he suddenly has a revelation. No, that's too weak a word. It's an inspiration. It's an ecstatic opening of truth. He is so taken by what he discovers that he rushes into the bedroom, wakes his wife and tells her, I'm sorry, I have become immortal. Because he has seen something nobody else has ever seen before. And once it will be known to the world, will change our understanding of everything we know about the cosmos and about history. And that is that the moon is to a large extent made of ice. 
It has a metallic core, but around that core there is an enclosed body of water, a big ocean, and then there's a very thick frozen ice crust. And nobody has seen that before. But of course, if you look at the moon, you can see it's made of ice. You can see all these craters which show you that there's lots of liquid which is frozen. So he has figured that out. Not only that, he now starts to investigate his great vision and he realizes that all the planets, almost all of them, with the exception of Earth, are made primarily of ice. Is that because they're so shiny? No, that's the sun reflecting on it, but of course it's an argument that helps. But I mean, the Milky Way, which is now re-termed the icy Milky Way, is essentially shards and blocks of ice, and you see them because the sunlight reflects off them. This is just the beginning. Now what he says is that the entire solar system we live in, and this would go for all other solar systems, is based on an ongoing interchange of the very hot and the very cold. To borrow somebody else's book title, it's a song of fire and ice. How did we come about? About a couple of billion years ago, there was a huge sun in what is today the constellation of Columba, the dove, and that sun was about 100 million times the size of our sun. This is where scientists start to part ways with her because they're going to say no body of that size can exist. But that's beside the point, and Helbiger didn't accept that. Into this super mother sun, as he calls it, plunges a planet which is 40,000 times the size of the sun. And it has a protective crust of slag on it, so the water inside and the ice doesn't melt, but it heats up and it heats up. And then there is a terrific cosmic explosion which thrusts huge amounts of solar matter and of water and ice out into space. And that is how the solar system in Unity came about. And we're all moving along the trajectory of that expulsion. And originally our solar system was made up of more planets than we have now, uh, about 20. But because gravity doesn't play so much a role in this uh, theory of Herbiger, and because he says that ice and hydrogen are distributed like an ether across space, all these orbiting planets and planetoids slowly fall into each other. Our moon, which you see at night, is in fact the sixth moon the Earth has had. The fifth moon, called the tertiary moon, because its existence more or less coincides with the tertiary, uh, fell to Earth a long time ago. But about 12,000 years ago, this Earth arrested another moon, and that is today's moon. That moon will also fall into Earth, creating catastrophes. And the next moon the Earth will capture is probably the planet Mars. So you can look forward to Mars being our next moon. If this is true, and this is a bit of an if, this means that the world's history started in a catastrophe and it is punctuated by lunar catastrophes. The moment the Earth arrests a moon, there is big flooding. When a moon disappears by breaking apart, we have a moonless period, which we had in history. And most importantly, the entire cosmos is no longer something that is running down second law of thermodynamics. It is an ongoing, everlasting steam chamber based on the exchange of heat and cold. 
So Harbiger was reacting against the gloom and doom of the late 19th century where everybody was quoting the second law of thermodynamics and the increase of entropy by saying, no, 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 physicists are all wrong. If you're an engineer like me and you work with heat and cold and steam, you realize that we've got an ongoing exchange of energy which keeps creating new energy by the exposure of great coldness to great heat and vice versa. He starts writing this up. He writes to scientists. He writes to astronomers. He gets fairly friendly letters back from them saying that he should keep his day job. Fortunately for him, he is very successful in his profession. He patents certain uh, valve compressors, which give him a lot of money, so he can indulge in his hobby. But nobody really takes this theory seriously, although in 1913, they publish a big book, Helbiger in combination with a man called Fault, and they give this theory the big name glacial cosmogony which is as much a mouthful in English as it is in German, glaziale cosmogonie. Uh, the book sells nothing. Nobody reads it. It is completely impenetrable and unreadable. I've tried it. But after the First World War, something changes. And this is the second stage in the period. And that is that popular writers start seconding and helping Helbiger. And overnight, there are many, many popular introductions to world ice theory, which make this a very well-known, but popular, a kind of pseudoscientific meme. And now something happens, Daniel, which is, I think, very important for discussion of the today. It gains such a following that established science, university science, academic science, has to take note of it. And so the scientists start wondering, should we address this as humbug? But if we do, are we not taking it seriously? And so for reasons which have to do with cultural factors, the disorientation of the First World War, the optimism, the catastrophism of this uh, theory, the way in which some of these popular books were written in a very, very engaging style, the ability to automatically apply to national and racial history, the very strong emphasis on the North, on, glac on glaciers, on coldness, on Northern Europe, of course, made this very popular. Helbiger dies in 1931, and then something takes place where the people responsible and those who are influential in the movement say, we have to change our tactic. We are no longer going to write popular books. We are now going to try, if I may use a paleontological metaphor, to find a place at the high table of cosmology. We want to be accepted as people who are delivering a viable alternative to all these newfangled theories called the theory of relativity and quantum mechanics and even classical Newtonian gravity. It was essentially a, a backlash against rational science in favor of uh, fantasy. It is absolutely indispensable and you cannot understand the rise of world ice theory without taking into account the backlash and the resentment against academic science, against universities, and against the impression that science, especially physics, has become so detached, so mathematized, so formalized, so unintuitive, that you want an alternative which is of immediate relevance to you. Look, look, look at it this way. You and I 
unless we get a real, real salary range, cannot have a particle accelerator in our basement to recreate conditions from the beginning of the cosmos. You and I do not have mirrors in our garden where we can measure graviton waves. This is beyond us. But what you can do if you've got Herbiger's theory is you can take a brick, you can drench it in water, you can freeze it, and you can throw it into a little vessel containing molten iron. And precisely that which happens then is what happened when that big planet plunged into the mother sun. So there's an immediate relevance of tangibility there. Herbiger would froth at his mouth, at which he was very good at the comparison, but there's something astrological in the sense that what happens to you and me in our daily lives is somehow related to some stellar constellation up there. So there is no break. You don't need to go into great detail. You don't need to go into great abstract cosmological theories to make a connection between what happens down here and up there. Best example is rain. What is rain? Rain is a result of a hydrological cycle, precipitation and evaporation, condensation and so on, but it is within a closed system of the earth. No, says Heidegger. Excuse me, Herbiger. Heidegger is very close to him in some case, says Herbiger. Uh, better cut that out. And no, says Herbiger. Rain, for example, hail, is ice from space coming down to earth. We are capturing the fine drainage of ice in space here on Earth. It creates a direct connection. That is something far more closer to what, not coincidentally, in those days was called your life world. And that feeds into a resentment against science, which seems to be detached from it, which is precisely as you pointed out. No, that makes total sense. Um, people get frustrated with the impenetrability of the science because it's just, like like you said, too detached, too abstract for them to uh, wrap their heads around without really putting in some serious effort. But the instant gratification of the philosophical science or the pseudosciences um, is appealing. And uh, yeah, we're definitely seeing that today. You and I can be, to use the term they used, cosmotechnicians you and I can realize that events in the so-called cosmos or event out in space are directly connected to things that happen here. You and I can talk about this in the streets and all this feeds into a certain perception. However, as starting in the 1930s, there is a slight change in the tactics in which the theory is sold. Unfortunately, um, the very best book on this is a book which has not been translated by a German scholar, Christina Wesseli, and she points it out, and um, she does a very good job of this. Now the ambition is to be accepted by official science. So forget about all this popularizing. We actually don't want to be associated with the popularizers. We want to be taken seriously. And now something happens which has um, slightly skewed the perception of world ice theory. It is known that several members in the uppermost echelons of the Third Reich, including Hitler himself, said complimentary things about world ice theory. Heinrich Himmler, the leader of the SS, is a follower, so are some others. And this has led to the perception that the world ice theory became kind of a state religion or state science. That is not true. As a matter of fact, as Christina Vesely points out, world ice theory was never more criticized than in the Third Reich 
not by established rational good scientists, but by scientists who were in league with the Third Reich and who do not want to be associated with this humbug. So Philip Leonard, who was a Nobel laureate and who is the founder of so-called German physics, which is kind of an anti-Jewish, anti-Einsteinian, anti-formalist, anti-too-abstract physics, he is one of the main enemies of Waldeis theory. Nonetheless, it gains a certain acceptance and there's a campaign to make people take it seriously. So at one point you have leading geologists sitting down at a table with uh, world ice theorists. And that, of course, having a seat at the table means a certain acceptance. It goes down not in 1945 after that it disappears, but already during the war because like many esoteric sciences that were promoted in the early stages of the Third Reich, it doesn't yield practical results. I'll just give you one example. A world ice theory claims to know everything about everything. So it does physics and cosmology and biology and history, and also, of course, meteorology, because it knows how the weather works. Now, meteorology becomes an extremely important science in war. Think of just the most famous example, D-Day. D-Day should not have taken place on the 6th of June. It is a very last, in the last minute decision, those meteorologists have convinced Eisenhower that there will be a window of opportunity to launch a, a seaborne invasion. German meteorologists are doing exactly the same thing, but they do not have the resources, so they do not think it will take place then. However, almost before that, um, the uh, German army has basically banned ice world theory meteorologists from dabbling because they can't produce any results. So like many other more esoteric and more folkish or more racistly inclined disciplines, it goes, starts going down the drain in the early 40s because it cannot live up to the demands and exigencies of a war. Does that mean that we should invite the pseudoscientists to the table and let them burn themselves out and i don't think it's worth a war to invite not, them. not for a, in a war setting but in um in a discussion setting <laughs> it is a very difficult question i think it is a case-by-case -case decision at what point and this is something which was very troubling to german physicists and which was very troubling also to university scientists at what point does entering into a discussion signal acceptance and in this case, it was it had spread so much in the general population that it was a phenomenon that needed to be tackled head on. Obviously, whether or not you believe that uh, the sun gave birth to the solar system by a big planet plunging in, or whether you believe in more accepted theories, doesn't really affect your daily life. But if you're looking at medical theories, where alternate suggestions and where alternate so-called remedies can have deadly impacts, then you have to engage, yes. Are you talking about modern medical conspiracy theories or historical ones? <laughs> no. One of the ideas I chose this is, and students latch onto this very, very quickly, is they can see the parallels. At what point do you engage in the discussion? When is it necessary and when is it not? And it's amazing how insidious uh, pseudoscience is in a society. Like our, our society, we can see now, is riddled with um, conspiracy theories and pseudosciences. But it's been lurking under the, under the surface uh, long before the pandemic. It's been lurking under the surface long before the pandemic. And two things that interest me is one, 
the direct correspondence. And the other thing, and this is more which leads into the topic of species resurrection, is the continuity of certain ideas where the content has changed, but the structure of thought is actually still very much the same. So for scientists, the question arises not, is this right or wrong, but where do these ideas come from? So one of the things about species resurrection is, if we can start on that, is we've got three related sets of questions. Number one is, how do we do it? And uh, I'm obviously not competent to talk about that, but as something biologists and geneticists talk about, you've got basically three suggestions. One would be um, cloning, the other would be genomic editing, and the third would be backbreeding. Now, backbreeding, of course, is older because the first two methods require vast um, advances in biology and genetics, which took place after the war, whereas backbreeding is an idea which precedes the war and which actually goes back to the 19th century. The second set of questions is, one, a scientific question, how is it done? I am not in any way entitled to talk about that. The second question is one which leads from science into ethics, should we do it and what are the costs? And here, uh, people like me slowly come in. But the third one is where people like myself specialize is how were these questions posed and answered say a hundred years ago? And to what extent is the way we talk about them today linked to the way they were answered back then? The case now is fairly well known. In the 1920s, two German brothers by the name of Lutz and Heinz Heck are the sons of a man called Ludwig Heck, who was the director of the Berlin Zoo for a very long time, from 1898 to 1932, and he is succeeded by one of his sons, Lutz Heck. And Ludwig Heck is a very important figure in the history of the Berlin Zoo. He vastly expands it. He is an avuncular figure known all about town, and the Berliners love their zoo. He is very interested in breeding and he ends up as a complete Nazi. But his sons therefore grow up in an atmosphere of animal keeping in captivity, of breeding and of the question of perfecting a breed. And as young men, the brothers are very much taken with the idea of backbreeding. And they are interested in two cases. One, to backbreed the alleged ancestor of all modern horses, the Tarpan horse. And the other one is to breed back the extinct aurochs, which is the ancestor of all modern cattle. Now, if you're into bovine history, you know that the last aurochs, like the last passenger pigeon, Martha in 1914, died in captivity in a Polish village in 1627. So it's not been dead for that long. Backbreeding involves the attempt to take members of an extant species chosen by their phenotypical features to backbreed, to revolve them back into the parent species. When I do this in class, I do a little thought experiment with students and say, let us for the moment assume that wolves had gone extinct. So the last wolf died in 1627 in a Polish village, and we want to bring back the wolves. We know that dogs relate to wolves the way cows relate to the aurochs. So you can take dogs and breed back wolves, allegedly. You want to have a dog that looks like a wolf, and you want to have a dog that behaves like a wolf. 
So in all likelihood, you're not going to start with a Chihuahua and a Spaniel. You're going to choose a dog that allegedly looks like a wolf, a Malamute or a Husky, or some students will automatically bring this up, a German Shepherd. Problem is, a German Shepherd, it's interesting, is a very modern breed. It's just about 120 years old. It was bred by uh, a Prussian army officer called von Stefani, who wanted to breed a dog that embodies German virtues. Duty, courage, sense of sacrifice, and being part of a collective. So you're using a very modern breed that mimics human behavior to breed back the ancient ancestor. Think about that for a moment. What do you know about wolves? Uh, they're pack animals. That you don't. That is the problem. You know it, but they wouldn't. Suppose they went extinct in the 17th century. You've got a fair idea what they look like uh, because you've got medieval woodcuts, you've got some paintings, you've got cave drawings. And that is what the Heck brothers had to go by by trying to bring back the owl rocks. So they're looking at old cave paintings and they're looking at some woodcuts. So you've got a fairly close idea, but they still got it wrong. And actually the two of them disagree on certain features. Now the behavior. You've got a lot of folklore element. What is the most influential and famous story about a wolf? Red Riding Hood. Now I'm going out on a limb here. Red Riding Hood is not a documentary on wolf behavior. Wolves do not talk, wolves do not cross-dress, and wolves normally do not sleep through vivisections when foresters come, open their stomach, remove Red Riding Hood or a grandmother and put in stones. Probably that's not what had happened. But if you look at medieval chronicles, and that's why, Daniel, this is important. If you look at medieval chronicles, you will have lots of, well, not lots, you will have reports of attack by wolves, but they're also single wolves. They are almost always cases of wolves that were removed from the pack. So one thing you cannot glean from the folklore and mythological information you have is that wolves are pack animals. You are breeding back a single apex predator, as it were. That is just to show you the difficulties that you have by breeding back a species which has only been dead for roughly 400 years. Now, the Heck brothers think they know what it looks like, they think they know how it behaved. And now they go off individually. Heinz Heck, who was the director of the Munich Zoo from 1928 to 1964, concentrates on the Northwest Southeastern European axis. He crossbreeds um, Scottish Highland cattle with Frisian cattle, with Hungarian Romanian cattle. And over the course of roughly 10 years, by six crossings, sometimes interbreeding mother and son, he arrives at something he calls an Aurochs. Lutzek, who is a far more iffy character, he goes to where probably you and I would go if we are to do this. He goes to Southwestern Europe. He goes to bullfighting cattle. He goes to the very longhorn Karmark cattle, which live on the island of Karmark in the Rhone Delta. And he goes to his special favorite, which are semi-feral Corsican cattle. Cows basically walking around the island, behaving almost like they were wild. And he crosses these three, and he arrives at something that looks very much like his brother in Munich created. And so they are now convinced they have created resurrected the Aurochs. And the Aurochs is exhibited as the Aurochs in the Munich Zoo, which Lutz Heck has taken over from his dad in 1932. 
And here things get dangerous. Number one, they are of the belief that by recreating phenotypically an aurochs, the genotype will follow. In plain English, if you recreate something phenotypically that looks like an aurochs, after a while it will behave like an aurochs. If it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, and if you put it in a pond, it will soon be a duck. So they put it into enclosures which, quote-unquote, recreate the old German landscape. But far more importantly, they put it into a big reserve, which is the personal property of Hermann Göring, who is a close confidant of Lutzek. And in the end, they put it into the allegedly last primeval forest of Europe, the Bielowieża forest, which is now the border of Poland-Belarus with the idea that if they put this aurochs into its natural habitat, it will revert to its natural behavior. That's step one. But step two is far deeper. This is why the idea gets picked up in the Third Reich by some. By invading the East and by colonizing the East and by turning the East partly into the forests that were there before, you are creating, as it were, a rewilding ground for human race. By interacting with the recreated Germanic forests of the past, and by interacting with species that at that point frolicked in those forests, including the European bison and the aurochs, you are helping the race return to its racial roots. You are recharging it, and it's a rewilding exercise. Now, the suspicion I have here is if you look at this, and if you look at this from a very abstract point of view, this is the idea. One, um, the animal and the human grow up together. There's a conspecific evolution. You will recreate the specific features of a conspecific evolution if you resurrect the extinct animals. If you put it into a habitat, that is also necessary because species and conspecifics evolve in a given habitat. Now you tell me, this sounds to me very modern. This is in a way what people are doing in Pleistocene Park and other um, attempts to rewild, though under completely different um, ideas. The idea of biotic connectivity, the idea that we can recreate the old mammoth step by rewilding and resurrecting old mammalian megafauna, is not that different from former ideas of racial connectivity and active connectivity that we can bring back old racial characteristics by connecting with these species. This does not mean that modern rewilding experiments are in any way per se racist. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, where do these ideas come from? Again, it's the flip, uh, flip sides of the same coin. Um, rewilding was used as a, a racist tool. Um, and yet today it's more an, an environmental um, It started concept. partly as an idea, not so much to bring back an old landscape, but to bring back an old habitat in which a certain segment of the population once grew to power, which is now no longer there and which has to be recreated to recharge, as you say, to rewild and to resurrect the old racial traits. 
oh, so they wanted to resurrect the, the Aryan. The idea is, remember that part of the um, uh, worldview is, is that modern civilization has brought about a weakening of the race. Um, one of the reasons for this unheard of ferocity of the Nazi politics is the idea that the racial clock is ticking down. It's five to 12. There is a very, very long debate among Nordic racists to what degree even people living in Northern Europe can still properly be called the master race because it has been so diluted and we have been so mollycoddled by modern civilization. Remember, when we think of national socialist racism, we think of it in a very primitive way there are certain races which have inbuilt innate capabilities, full stop. And if you read Mein Kampf, that is partly what people like Hitler say. But if you dig into the literature, that is not what they're saying. They're saying something that history has eroded the race, that climate has played a huge part. So we have to recreate former conditions to bring back the old vigor. And the recreation of former conditions must include the recreation of former conspecifics like the Arocs. That is why they take to the idea. That totally makes sense. Um, it's something that we understand today. And uh, like all good uh, deceptions, it starts with a nugget of truth, but then veers off in a very strange direction. What for me as a Germanist is interesting is where do the Heck brothers in turn get this idea from? And it goes back to Red Riding Hood. Red Riding Hood is a story collected by Jakob and Wilhelm Grimm. And it was a bit of a sideshow for them. They never anticipated this to be that successful. Jakob Grimm, the elder Grimm, is a formidable figure because he was one of the leading linguists of the 19th century. And as people before him had figured out, all the Indo-European languages are connected. And he focuses on the special Germanic language group. And he says, look, and this is taken as a given. He doesn't do it on his own. His fame outshadows those of others. But that's why we call it Grimm's Law. He says, look, we've got a whole set of Germanic languages, German, Swedish, Norwegian, Icelandic, some of them extinct, like Gothic. And they're all related. And they all relate back to a mother language. So we've got many cognates in these languages. English say house, Germans say house, same word, obviously. So if we collect as many cognates from these living and dead languages as possible, we can now recreate the parent language. This parent language is a great deal more systematic than the Germanic languages we speak now. If an English student learns Old English, or if a German student learns Middle High German, they will see it's far more systematic. It's basically worn down in time. But we can recreate that language. And by recreating that language, we can gain access to the world in which these people live. Could you explain systematic? Systematic is the following. Languages do not change at random. Many words that in German begin with PF, in English begin with P. So English pipe or pepper is German Pfeiffer and Pfeffer. So depending on where they were in a word, depending on certain sound rules, the languages change systematically. And all the words beginning with P in English will have PF in German. That's a systematic change. 
In order to figure this out, you need to know 10 languages and you need to spend decades going through all the changes. And that is what Grimm did. So Grimm mapped out the systemic changes that led to the establishment of the modern Germanic languages, which are all derived from the old Proto-Germanic. Great achievement, one of the great pre-Darwinian forays into evolutionary science, I would say. And then Grimm does something which is a catastrophe, but which is still very influential. He believes that the same can be done with mythology. We have a parent mythology. We have Old Norse mythology, we've got Germanic mythology, we've got other mythologies, and they all descend from an Ur-Germanic mythology. So we can look at Old Norse mythology and German mythology and see similarities like the god Odin as the god Wotan. And we can now recreate exactly as we did with languages, an old parent mythology. It is wrong, but it was very, very influential. Now look at the abstraction. You've got various offshoots which are related. The offshoots have cognates, that is similarities which are systemically changed. If you get many of them, you can recreate the parent. The parent is going to be more systematic, more formidable, more impressive than the children. And once you have the parent, you have an insight into the world. Now look at the Heck brothers. We've got many cow breeds. These cow breeds have certain cognate specifics. We can now systemically map these and bring back the parent. The parent is more formidable, greater. It's an aurochs. And by breeding the aurochs, we have an insight and inroad into the world the aurochs inhabited. So what we were talking about, the evolution from today's rewilding to the heck rewilding, goes even further back. It goes back into the ideas of how languages do develop and how mythologies could develop. So just sum up again, uh, how does the connection between returning to the original language and the original mythology connect to the returning to the original environment? You have a parent species, the aurochs. The parent species is much more formidable. It is stronger, greater, wilder, more systematic, less inbred, less domesticated. It is more the real thing. It is now branched out into many breeds, but it is still there. It is just distributed across various cow breeds. There's the famous word by the science fiction author William Gibson, the future is already here. It is just unevenly distributed. Grimm's and Hex would say, the past is still here. It is just unevenly distributed. You just have to reconnect certain traits of cows and you will arrive at the aurochs, just as you have to reconnect certain mythologies and you will arrive at the proto-mythology all the Germanic tribes once believed in. And you can recreate the proto-Germanic language from its offspring languages today. Same logic, same structure, transferred from one to the other, and also the same fallacy, because that's not what works. That totally makes sense. Like the the belief that the, the genes from the auroch are still yeah. uh, in modern cattle, just suppressed. And so if you work hard enough, you can bring them out. Uh, and if you work hard enough, you can bring the suppressed culture, which is apparently uh, under this philosophy, um, repressed and, or recessive in all of us. 
uh, you can bring it back. Once upon a time, a hundred years ago, it went outside in. Already in the 19th century, some biologists, for example, a Polish biologist by the name of Jarotsky, had the idea that you could recreate the extinct species by simple rewilding. Put pigs in a forest, remove the wolves that could kill them, and in a couple of generations, they will be wild boars. Basically, take a pack of Rottweilers, abandon them in the wilderness, come back 40 years later, they will have changed into wolves. The idea being is that rewilding is the same as resurrection. We know that's nonsense. But in the Heck Brothers, you still have something going from the outside in. Let us create something that on the outside allegedly looks like an Aurox, which, by the way, is not true, but they believed it. Let's put it into an outside environment, and these forces will work from the outside in and also genotypically and behaviorally recreate the Aurox. We kind of think a bit the other way around. Let's do some genomic editing. Let's go to the very core and work from the inside out and thereby recreate the species. But um, it works along the way this outside in was something which was taken very seriously, not only because they couldn't go the other way, because they didn't have the genetic understanding, but because it made sense. We are bred by our environment. If we change the environment and if we change our bodies, we will change back into what we were. Absolutely. There's uh, definitely a link between environment and, and culture. Um, if you were to take the Inuit culture and plop it into the Amazon, uh, the culture would evolve very differently. Um, but that's not to say that if you take Amazonians and pop them into the Arctic, they'll evolve into the Inuit culture. <laughs> the thing is that, I mean, they, they realize that it wouldn't get very far, but the idea is two things. If you re-Germanize the East, Poland, and what would now be the, Eastern, the Western portions of Russia, you have to do two things. On the one hand, you have to recreate what allegedly was there in the times of the old Germanic tribes. On the other hand, you're making these changes. You are importing German fauna to make the German settlers feel at home. Uh, that's not quite the same thing. So they didn't even on that level to get their act together. If you look at the completely chaotic planning, which is known as the Generalplan Ost, there is an ongoing debate to what degree you are recreating an alleged primeval setting, which will reshape those who live there, or whether you should actually recreate what is in Germany now so the settlers feel at home. So even on that level, they have gone straight. Fascinating. <laughs> now, at the beginning of your of this interview, you mentioned uh, something about methamphetamines and, and the Third Reich. Uh, does that tie into this at all? Yes, it does. I, I chose the topic because there was a very well-known book a couple of years ago by a German writer, Norman Ohler, called Blitzed, which uh, was a bestseller and which in German is called Der Totale Rausch, which Cognate Grimm translates as the total rush. And the book is made up of two stories and it interchanges. One story, which is of less interest to me, and I think is also really not that much worth the read, is Hitler's personal drug habits, whether or not he was dependent on the drugs that was given to him by his doctors. But the other half is a retelling of a well-known story, but he tells it so much better than anybody else. And that is the abuse of the methamphetamine perbitine 
uh, in the late 30s and 40s. Remember, methamphetamines were first discovered by Japanese scientists, but very soon the Germans, who especially between the years 1850 and 1940, excelled at breaking bad, here too took over. I mean, they developed everything from methadone to heroin and all that, and specialized in the development of methamphetamines. Rumor has it, though it is a rumor, I don't think it's true, that American athletes attending the 1936 Olympics were doped with benzodrine, which is an amphetamine. And the Germans wanted to come up with something stronger, methamphetamine, and so uh, at a factory called Temmler's, a chemist called Hauschild, developed a methamphetamine which was given the trade name pervitin. And like any strong drugs, it was a remedy in search of an illness. And in doing so, it became the illness itself, because they didn't quite know what to do with it. And so it was sold sometimes in little chocolates for housewives. The idea was that this is a remedy against frigidity. It was sold to other people as uppers. It was sold as everything because people realized when you took it, you felt better and you felt more energetic. Now, the great thing about the internet is that all this now is online. So you can go and look at medical journals from the 1930s who are very quickly looking at this. And they figured out the difficulties right in the beginning. And so you've got medical journals in the 1930s where doctors are writing reports on taking pervitin. So there has a Hungarian doctor who is on a visit in Germany and he's on a party and he drinks champagne and he takes pervitin and he feels really good and he pulls an all-nighter and lo and behold he finally understands a German novel he wasn't able to read before. So good is this drug it makes you understand German lit. <laughs> but then there are the first experiments and so they take two guys and they put them at a table and they give them math problems. And they quickly realize the person who has been given a placebo is just as clever as the person who has been given meth. It's just that the latter thinks that he's cleverer. Uh, so it boosts confidence, but it doesn't in a way make you cleverer. But then they put him on stationary bikes. And here it becomes interesting. The person who's been given a placebo gives up after a while. The person who's been given pavitine can go on longer. Next day can go on longer. On the third day, complete breakdown. What they realize is the following. Pervitin does not give you additional energy. It helps you delay. It helps you push out the boundary point at which your body shuts down because it do does not want to access the iron reserves you need to function. And so they realize if people like you and me take it, no big deal. If a professional athlete takes it, very dangerous because they are trained to overcome this point of no return. But by now, this point is being pushed to the absolute termination of physiological functions. And so they write in the report, look, this is dangerous if given to athletes, but it might be good to give to the army because the army sometimes needs people to go beyond the point of no return. Here, the legends and the memes start. It is alleged that pervitin, which was dispensed widely by the German army in the campaign against Poland, and in particular in the campaign against France, had in the Western campaign an instrumental role to play. 
Blitzkrieg as implemented by the Germans, they didn't use the term, it was a term invented by Americans, Blitzkrieg means that you break through at certain chosen points the enemy front and fan out behind. And if you do this in a tank, you need to get going for two and three days nonstop. Now, if you've ever sat in a small Mark IV tank, which they used in 1940, nobody wants to stay in there for longer than four minutes. But they were able to do it, and the argument is, is that Pavitin keeps you awake, and it therefore was instrumental in the success in the Western operations, was it allowed for German tank crews to be on the spot for longer. But there were, they noticed very quickly, um, uh, addictive side effects and an increased rate of people having cardiac arrests. And so for the rest of the war, Pavitin was still given out, but it wasn't given out as generously in the beginning. That is one side of the story. The other side of the story is that the National Socialist leadership, or to be precise, the Reichsgesundheitsführer, a man by the name of Conti, realized that this stuff is addictive. And so first they made it prescription only, and then they banned it. It could only be handled by professionals. It fell under the opium law. That didn't help at all because the German army didn't give a damn about the law. So it was still widely available and it was a bottom-up procedure by people taking it because it makes you feel good, it makes you energetic. When would that ban have occurred? The ban would have occurred in 1941. They started ban They started putting in prescriptions soon afterwards and 41 would have been the ban. But it didn't help much because by far the greatest client is the army. And the army is not going to bow to the opium law in the middle of a world war. That's a bit more important than the opium law for that. But now comes the twist on it. And this has to do with two very dangerous shifts in the medical profession in the Third Reich. The first is well known, and that has been discussed widely, and this is something which has been analyzed now for decades. One of the terrible things that happened is, to put it in a nutshell, that the Hippocratic Oath, which means that you, the doctor, must put the well-being of your individual patient above everything else, is moved from the individual to the collective level. You, the doctor, must put the health of the collective national body above everything else. But that means that individual bodies are now like cells, and some of these cells may be cancerous or conducive to illness. They must be removed. So you have doctors as medical warriors that are now working on overall fitness rather than on the health and well-being of the individual. That explains the, uh, the reputation for grotesque medical procedures. That is partly it. And it explains the idea that doctors and the medical profession gain a completely new standing in society. It is not coincidental that no profession had percentage-wise as many party members as physicians. Because, of course, it is a biologistical, to use this very ugly term, a biologistical ideology which stresses the physical health of the collective body above all else. And that puts doctors at the leading edge of the medical warriordom. 
The second shift is a bit less well known because it never really kicked in. It takes place at the always dangerous boundary between health and insurance policies and pension plans. You will have a pension when you retire by contract because you paid into a fund. That's it. Because you paid in, you will get money. By 1940, the Germans and the Nazi bureaucrats are rethinking this. It's costing too much. And they're saying, well, we should only give a pension to those who really contributed to the collective, to the folk, while they worked. So you will be retrospectively perceived as somebody who either contributed or not. Basically, if you behaved like a good aunt and sacrificed yourself for the community, you'll get a pension. If not, well, that's you. Now, the problem is, it still means that people will need to get money when they no longer work. And it is well known that the physical capabilities in hardworking jobs declines after 30, in many other jobs after 40. And now they're thinking, how do we change this? And very slowly in the medical profession, there's the thought, what we have to achieve is a standard of health where the end of the working life coincides with the end of your life. Mm. Can you see the connection to methamphetamines, the guy on the stationary bike? You will break down and your body will completely break down, but up until then you will work. You will work until you can no longer work and you die. You are in a way trying to approximate the breakdown of your physical and functional capabilities with the breakdown of your working capabilities. Or to put it in plain English and very drastically, society is not made up of the ill and the healthy. Society is not made up of the living and the dead. Society is either the working or the dead. As long as you work, you're alive. If you no longer work, you should have died. That is senicide, the killing of those who for easy reasons of age and then also of illness can no longer work. And the idea of methamphetamine encapsulates on an individual level what later was never implemented but planned on a collective level. And that is a world in which you are defined by your active, complete and utter contribution to the collective, which will last as long as you live because your life is determined by your ability to work for the collective. And when you can no longer do that, that should be at the point when your life shuts down. So basically using the, the methamphetamines to pre-squeeze uh, the, the life energy from a person. You are delaying the point at which your body shuts down. Your body will shut down when you die, not because it still has certain reserves it want to conserve. We need those reserves. We need them now. Access them. That's, uh, that's very dark. <laughs> it is very dark. But I mean, as students point this out in class sometimes, in a way, it is a society that is obsessed with youth. It is a society that is obsessed with what the Germans call Leistung, which is semantically between performance and energy, the contribution of a healthy life to a collective. It is not for nothing that Josef Goebbels, the minister of propaganda, in 
the self-presentation of the Third Reich was very keen to promote the fact that the leaders of this regime, the entire outlook of this regime, is young. Adolf Hitler is born 1889, so he becomes chancellor, head of government at age 43. He becomes head of state at age 44, 45. That is very young. The leading leaders, the leading perpetrators of the Third Reich are very often men born around 1900, like Heinrich Himmler. So you're dealing with men in their 30s. And they would constantly say, look at our young leaders, contrast them with Roosevelt, contrast them with Churchill, we are the young nation. And it is not coincidental, Goebbels would say, that the first inroad, the first significant inroad made by the National Socialist Party in the late 1920s, when in federal elections they were still running at two or three percent, is in student elections. When the federal party, the Nazis, are still down in the low single digits, the National Socialist Students League is racking up 20-30% in student elections. Now, of course, student elections cannot be compared to federal elections, but this is a decisive difference, which means not that many students were Nazis. It means that many students were taken by a radical alternative which promised a complete overhaul of an aging sclerotic political system. And whether that comes from the extreme left or the extreme right is less important than the fact that it should be done. Yeah, uh, we see that even today. Uh, people frustrated with um, the system and just saying, burn it to the ground. I, I deal with university politics in the course, and there is an alliance between uh, the contract faculty and the younger students against what at that point was an extremely authoritarian, undemocratic, elitist, absolutist professoriate in German universities. So to a certain extent, the ways in which the Nazis changed the university was done in mind by establishing alliances with a discontent student body and a discontent lower echelon contract faculty, assistant professors who couldn't get jobs. In the end, it didn't work, but it was strategically for them at that point a good advice. So this society, which is obsessed with youth, is also obsessed with ancient their ancient relatives, right? Because, look at it this way. There are paleontological theories, theories of evolution, which were particularly strong in Germany. They were anti-Darwinian in the sense that they stressed the natural life cycles of higher taxa. Within a German context, the most important man is a man by the name of Otto Schindewolf, who was the leading paleontologist in 20th century Germany. And what he's basically saying is he's applying Spengler's theory of the rise and fall of cultures to the rise and fall of higher taxa. So new groups of animals suddenly come into being, then they differentiate into species, and then these species at the end of the life cycle become sclerotic or too big or too small. So the usual textbook example, the cliche is the Irish elk. The Irish elk shouldn't exist. It is over-specialized. The antlers doesn't let it move. Whales are going extinct because they're too big or other animals because they're too small. This idea is now at work in racism. Races run through life cycles. 
So the early is the young is the good. There's an equation sign between the three. So can we recreate conditions where the young returns? Or can we make a point that Germany is a younger nation than others and thereby destined for greatness? Because England and France are old, sclerotic, and the young Germans are younger, and therefore they deserve leadership. That's the idea in heads. That makes sense. Okay. So yeah, they're going for the younger culture, which is the more ancient culture. It is the younger culture's more vigorous culture. And uh, there are, to this day, unexplored exchanges between the idea of life cycles, or what in paleontological theory would be called orthogenetic life cycles, that is the idea of a sudden birth, then a differentiation, and then an enthesis, what Otto Schindewolf would call the typogenesis, the typostasis, and the typolysis on the one hand, and cultural cycles on the other hand. And this brings us back to Herbiger, because Herbiger's theory was very important for some of the more wacko paleontologists in Germany, because the sudden capture and um, implosion of the moon would give you the catastrophes that would allow for the sudden divergence of a whole new group of genus and families and orders. Now, this seems, um, you know, it's wacky, but it, it does also follow a bit of a, an ideological framework. Um, do you happen to know if modern uh, racist groups ad adhere to such a, a strict ideological framework, or is it just no. hate all the way? No, this is in a way a dark point, but a good point to finish. When we talk about national socialism, we now know, and there are entire hangers of scholarship full of this, that economically and politically, it was an extremely divisive, internally fractured society with a lot of infighting, with a lot of radicalization that was based on the com competition between agencies and the uh, preference for the system to always choose the most radical solution to a problem. But we still, when we talk about national socialist ideology, think in terms of a Leni Riefenstahl movie. We think of everybody goose-stepping in line and there's a very clear law. And this, I think, is wrong. I'm here inspired by the work of recent Norwegian historians who say, and who look at their own Nazis, who partly were even more radical than the Germans, they were out nazing the Germans, uh, who say we have to talk about national socialisms, ugly plural, not only because national socialisms develop differently in various countries. You've got a southeastern European national socialism like in Romania, you've got the German, you've got the Scandinavian version, you've got others. But also, and this is my addition inside, think to use the very, very easy metaphors, national socialism is not a finished meal, it is a recipe. It is not a complete house or edifice, it is a construction site. It gives you the ingredients. It gives you a very clear understanding what ingredients is important and how they should be combined. But it leaves open the possibility for you to come in. So national socialism is also on its ideological level, 
something which invites participation and which is a work in progress. And various variants, depending on when you are in the Third Reich, especially in the end period when it becomes more radical, seem to take over. That makes National Socialism so highly connective to today. You're not connecting to a fixed body. You are connecting to an ongoing interplay of ideas where you can extract things. And one of the more up and coming ideas, which was only one variant, is the idea that there is a connection, as we set out in the beginning, between climate change and race, that there's a connection between species and race, and that there's a connection between when you are in your life cycle and how good you are relative to others. And that is something which I think needs to be stressed more, that the nefariousness of National Socialism is also that it invites participation. It actually wants people to come in and to play around. And so the reason why also many alpha plus names like Martin Heidegger in philosophy, Carl Schmitt in um, law, or some people in the sciences came in was because they thought they could bring in their expertise and further build it. I specialize in an entomologist, Karl Escherich, who was one of the world's greatest experts on social insect societies. When he speaks about a termite colony, he's also speaking about national socialism as he sees it, how it should be done. And that makes it dangerous. Are you saying that they were true believer, believers or were they seeing ways in which they could influence the movement toward rationalism? More the latter. Uh, the idea is not you come in and you give it more residence, but you come in and you see something that is unfinished and you have the wherewithal to finish it, coming with your extraordinary disciplinary knowledge. So it is part identification and part not being able to resist the temptation to step in and to perfect it. That does explain why it was so seductive to so many people. And um, it does have really disturbing tones to today where you see in some of these uh, racist movements, the invitation to uh, believe what you want and uh, bring your own version of, of facts and, and reality. You've got a set of incontrovertible clear facts. That is allegedly the notion of a qualitative difference between races but you do not have the idea that this is completely atemporal and ahistorical. It is subject to certain developments. That is where you link in. And that to me is dangerous because the partial connection to National Socialism is as dangerous as the complete connection to it, because this is not a coherent whole. This is a bundle of ideas constantly changing throughout the 12 years the Third Reich was in power, becoming more radical in time, but still opening up avenues where you can connect. It's like intellectually trying to re wrestle with uh, Jello. With extremely dangerous Jello, and with Jello, which in a way means that if you come in, you can finally have it congeal into Bodice. And before I let you go, I, I do want to go back to a few points. You mentioned that the, uh, the two Zoo brothers tried to uh, resurrect not only the auroch but also um, an early horse. Yeah. Uh, did they have any success with that, or was it just a pipe dream? They <laughs> yeah, they, they claimed that they had resurrected the tarpan horse. 
Um, I don't believe that for a second, just as no geneticist, no biologist believes that the so-called Heck cattle, which are the progeny of Heinz, Hex, Munich, our ox is an ox. No, they did not. But both of them claimed for the rest of their lives that they had recreated the ox and the Tartarus. What happened to the animals afterward? Uh, Lutz Heck, the Berlin Heck, the Nazi Heck, all of his so-called aurochs, which were either in the Bielowieża forest or in Romintin or in the Schorfheide or in the Berlin Zoo were killed. Uh, the Berlin Zoo suffered terribly at the end of the war from originally, I think, 3,500 animals, 91 were left. And they had, I mean, they, the aurochs did not survive. The only aurochs that survived were the Munich aurochs, Heinzhex aurochs. And they are now being deployed, for example, in Holland and in other places. And the reason why it became well known is that roughly 15 years ago, an English farmer in Devonshire bought a couple of heck cattle, as they're called, and was attacked by them. And of course, the English tabloids, you know them, had a field day. This was Hitler's invasion 60 years later, finally working. The, he, the heavily hooved infantry has come in. But the heck cattle are still around, and they are now a normal breed of cattle. They are just unpleasant cows. Yeah, whenever I think about that, um, or whenever I, I tell my boss about it, I always say the Nazi super cows. That's what they're called, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, if you know cows, and I grew up in a rural area, if you know cows, you know that cows are not that happy and smooth and easygoing as people think they are. And the hack cattle are at the extreme end of that. But apparently they're delicious, right? That I wouldn't know. I take your word on it. <laughs> I think I heard that somewhere. Well, uh, Jeff, thank you very much. This has been a fascinating chat, uh, very different from what we normally talk about, but uh, a very welcome change. Before we let you go, again, you are with the Center for Eastern Northern... Uh... It's the Department of Central, Eastern and Northern European Studies, which is located in Buchanan Tower. And we teach, uh, we've basically got three programs. We've got a PhD MA and a new grad program in German, and we've got minors in Russian and in Scandinavian. Thanks for your time. Thanks for your expertise and um, yeah, your passion. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Honor. Honor is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast, or listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week, here on Earth.